We can talk Do about it. Do you want to talk about it? Oh, yeah, go you, ahead. You, you, you go, you go. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, <laughs> welcome back, Intimates. Thanks for your support on Patreon, making this 2021 season possible. This podcast is about all things intimate. Relationships, love, connection, community, consensual non-monogamy, kink, orgies, lovers, and of course, good old-fashioned sex. I talk with old friends and even meet some new ones. I interview people from all walks of life, from recovered addicts to counselors, sex partners to perfect strangers. I'd like to thank my hosts, the Musqueam First Nation, as this podcast is recorded on their unceded ancestral territory, where I was born, where I work, and where I currently live and play. So settle in for an intimate conversation. Lisa Tamati, our Maori ultramarathon friend who has competed in somewhere around 140 marathons, is back to chat with us today about doing the impossible. A mistress of mindset, Lisa chats with us about belief, belief in ourselves, but also belief in people who believe in us. With the feats of stamina and endurance she's achieved in her life, I can think of few better qualified people to speak on the topic. And, you know, plenty of companies and elite athletes pay her for coaching and speaking, so she probably knows what she's talking about. Lisa's book, Relentless, goes into more detail if you find this one session leaves you wanting more. You can pick it up on her website at lisatamati.com, that's L-I-S-A-T-A-M-A-T-I, and you can also, of course, get her podcast for free. It's called Pushing the Limits, everywhere podcasts are found, and it's quite good. Have a listen. Oh wait, let me channel my inner LeVar Burton. But don't take my word for it. Decide for yourself after listening here on Intimate Interactions. Welcome to another session of Intimate Interactions. I'm here with Lisa Tamati. The you are the first New Zealand ultramarathoner to run the is it the Badwater Ultramarathon in in America? Yeah, first woman, first woman. There was a there was one guy before me, or like two guys before me. Sorry, but I was the first woman to do it. Got yeah, it. It's right. <laughs> it's I and believe this is an incredible race. Yeah, yeah. It's like two megameters. Right? It's like two thousand kilometers. No, it's um so so Death Valley is two hundred and seventeen kilometers, so we're talking one hundred and thirty-five miles and I added terms. a zero. I must have you accidentally. added a zero. You must have been looking at my run through New Zealand, which was two thousand two hundred and fifty, <laughs> which you'll get to <laughs> in a minute. <laughs> but um the Badwater Ultra Marathon is through Death Valley, which is of course the hottest desert on earth. Um, and it's run in the middle of summer. So you, you're talking temperatures, uh, oh gosh, what's it in Fahrenheit? I think up to 130-odd degrees. That's okay, uh, we use Fahrenheit. Celsius. We use Celsius in Canada. Oh, you so do you Celsius. Can, yeah. So that's like 57 degrees, you know, was the <laughs> the, hot, the the top point we got to. So, it, like, just mind-blowingly hot. Um, just just awful, awful hot. <laughs> and yeah. it, it, you're starting below sea level, and you're going, so 217 kilometres, and you're going over the two high, uh, the two Two massive passes on route and then finishing up on Mount Whitney, halfway up Mount Whitney as well. So uh, a lot of climbing and a lot of distance and a heck of a lot of heat. <laughs> so it's a pretty, it's a pretty uh, major event. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds grueling and like it is just designed to devastate the human body if you're not prepared for it. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So it takes a lot of years of training and preparation to to be able to do something like this. And um, I mean, I'd been running ultra marathons at that point for about thirteen years, I think, when I first did it. Um, and you know, you you 
there's a, there's, it's really hard to get a slot in this race. You wouldn't you wouldn't think so, right? You'd think, like, right. who the hell would want to run <laughs> in the middle of summer? But actually, there's thousands of people who want to do it, and um, there's only 85 slots, so you have to have a pretty long resume to get in um, right. and meet all these you know qualification criteria. So it was a really special event. So 85 people get to do this every every year, um, and you have to have a crew. You're you're uh, and, the, and the biggest danger is, is of course the heat because if you overheat your brain overheats your neurons overheat you can die yeah um and so keeping your 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 temperature within the bounds of of being able to function is the is the biggest uh you know the hardest thing to do mm-hmm. and uh yeah it, it, it was just it's one of it's a bit like um kona is for the triathletes you know like the world it's sort of the unofficial world champs of our sport, if you like, of mm-hmm. crazy people. So, yeah, we're definitely a, a bunch of weirdos yeah, doing some weird stuff. But <laughs> You know, it's, it's so interesting. I've been described the same way with all the kink and non-monogamy and, and all of that sort of stuff. But it's significantly, yeah. it's significantly not as positive on one's physique. I'll say that. But possibly, <laughs> possibly on one's mental muscles for cultivating intimacy. Possibly. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, it's um I tell you what, actually physically it's not so not so good for you either running through Death Valley. <laughs> you definitely come out the other end a little bit older, <laughs> a little bit more you. broken. <laughs> um but what well, you know, what I did want to share about this journey really mm-hmm. is the stuff that you learn when you're pushing the limits as an athlete mm-hmm. and how that can really benefit you in daily life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in your business and in your career and you know because it's a mind it's a you learn a lot of things you learn you learn things like discipline obviously because you know when you set a goal of say run through death valley you've got to get up every day and train doesn't matter come hell or high water you have to do your miles you have to do your strength training you have to do your mobility work you have to eat right you have to you know all of these aspects so mm-hmm. you have to bring a certain amount of discipline otherwise you're not you're going to stand on the start line unprepared and then you're you're going to crash and burn, right? So you have to be disciplined enough to to follow through on on what you what you set out to do. And so that's that's a a, a really good lesson for starters. And then there's the whole persistence and resilience piece of the puzzle. You know, like when you're doing ultra marathons, you can have the best laid plan you, that you could possibly ever want. But it, you know, what do they say in, in the army? Um, you know the best laid plans don't don't survive first contact with the enemy, and <laughs> and that's pretty much you know a, a really good analogy. So you can have all the all the plans laid out, but then when real life hits in the middle of the race, and you know, you get something wrong, or your digestive system goes, or mm-hmm. or you start cramping, or you get your electrolytes wrong, or you overheat, or whatever, then then things are going to go pear shaped. And then what are you going to do? And how are you going to fight? And how are you going to fight through the pain? And how are you going to fight through the 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 obstacles that come so you learn a mindset of okay i'm going to get around obstacles so when when you there's a saying in ultra marathoning when you can't run walk if you can't walk walk crawl but just don't stop you know and Mm -hmm. that's really a super lesson for life you know in the last session when i was talking about my mum and rehabilitating her it was very much you know a crawl a lot of the time you know you're no longer running you're no longer walking you're just crawling forward and hoping that you're going to get to the point where you can just push through a little bit harder and, wow. and so you learn also you, you learn also that when you think it's all over 
Mm-hmm. You're not even 40% of the way through your actual abilities, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so there's another 60% in the tank at least. And then when you get to the end of that 60%, what you'll find is there's another 60% in the tank. <laughs> and so when you when you do this, you 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 think it's all over a hundred times in, in, in every race. There's, there's, there comes so many points in the race where you just think, I cannot go on, I cannot go on. I don't know how to take another step. And somehow you do take another step and somehow you do get back up and you do, you know, bumble on somehow. And that mm-hmm. is a, such a good you know, mindset for, for life and business. You know, if you can imagine in businesses and you're starting a business and it's all exciting, when you start a project, it's always super exciting, right? You're full of energy and you got this, oh my God, I'm going to run through Death Valley or I'm going to start this business. And then, and then the reality of, oh my God, this is way bigger than I ever thought possible. And then, oh my God, all the, it's all happening so much slower than I thought. And then all the obstacles come and all the difficulties come. And it's then is how much, how much do you understand your why? You know, like how much do you know how to tap into those resources? Like when you, when you have a big goal, you have to have a big why. If you go into a big goal without a big wire, you're not going to get there right. because you're not going to have the resources to fight through the pain, the suffering, the obstacles, the problems, the setbacks, the failures, all the things that will happen en route. You won't get up from each of those. You won't have the resources to do that. So when I'm working with a client on mindset, I'm sort of digging into the real deep layers of what is their why? Why are they doing this? You know, so if I, if I, if you say to me, but oh, oh, I want to run a marathon. Okay. And I go, okay, why do you want to run a marathon? And you say to me, cause it's always been on my bucket list, you know, and I just want to tick it off. <laughs> and I'm like, that's not a, that's not a why, you know, that's not a why. Not a resilient why one. Not a resilient one. Oh, oh, well, I want to run because, um, Back in school, I was hopeless at cross country, and my teacher told me I was never going to be any good at running. That's why I want it now. Now we're getting to a little bit more of a, a real why, okay? There's because, the emotional charge. It, yes, it's emotionally charged. It, or it might be that, you know, I want to be a, a role model for my children, or mm. I want to, you know, I want to be the best version of myself, and I feel like I'm just not doing, not cutting it, and I want to push through. And I'm now we're getting somewhere. And the more that you can peel these layers of the onion back and get back to the right into the middle of the onion where it's the most powerful <laughs> and strong, the more likely you are to to overcome the obstacles to getting there. So when you're when your why is strong enough, they say, you know, you can endure anyhow. Right. Um, and that's a really, a really good little quote to remember. So understand why the hell you are taking this challenge on and understand that every challenge you do take on will mean a sacrifice in another area of your life. And this is something that I didn't get for a long time. I thought Mm. I could do it all. And I thought that I can just take on every project that I was interested in and I would run myself ragged, burn myself out, break down, you know, do a poor job across all, all of the things. Um, and I still have a tendency to do this because I have shiny object syndrome where I love chasing, <laughs> you know, interesting new things all the time. And uh, you know, like in business, my business partner has to pull me back and keep going, stay focused, you know, <laughs> pull back. You're spreading yourself too thin. So understanding when you take on a big project, another project will suffer. 
and that you have to then prioritize then is this the one that I actually want to go all in on right. you know like I'm doing this at the moment trying to assess whether I yeah you know I'm I'm, I'm still optimizing my mum's health I'm trying to have a, a baby through IVF I'm Very trying to exciting. do a PhD and I'm <laughs> yeah well, and it's you know I'm 50 I'm nearly 53 so this is like really on the edge possible right right and I'm trying to, I'm, I'm deciding whether to do a PhD and I'm running two companies and, um, you know, what can give in that scenario? Right. <laughs> it's like, so I've got to, I've got to prioritize and a, and a big piece of me wants to go and do the PhD. Right. Right. And another big piece of me is going, but hang on, how the hell are you going to do that? Run your companies and have a baby and look after your, your mom. Right it's probably not sensible right so so i still haven't come to the conclusion on that one because i like to just well why can't i do it all you know but (laughs) when you do try to do it all that's when you're going to end up you know flat on your back at some point going oh my god i can't even do anything anymore and i've done that in the past and i've made those mistakes i'm trying to be a little bit wiser i'm not sure if i'm there yet but (laughs) i don't think any of us are but i really appreciate you being vulnerable and open about that struggle, I think that's a very important note when talking about resilience of it's sometimes described as a Zorro circle. It's everything sort of within your awareness and you sort of push everything else out of the Zorro circle so you can really focus on your objectives. That's so that's such a good analogy or a good yeah picture to have mm-hmm. because yes, you do have to sacrifice um, a lot when you're taking on big things and you have to go all in. And that means leaving a lot of other things out. You know, if I, if I look back over the last five years, what's suffered? Well, you know, my husband's definitely suffered, Mm. um, and had the short end of the stick and, you know, um, other family members, a lot of my friends haven't had the best of me. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, they all understand that they will Mm -hmm. understand why, but it, it is always, you know, you're going to lose something when you put you know, so much you of yourself, put so much into something yeah. else. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Amazing. So yeah, I think these are, these are correlations between sport and, and life, mm-hmm. life in general and business and careers are just so great, you know, and I mean, there's so many more, you know, you learn planning, you learn marketing, like as an, as a ultra marathon athlete, there's no, there's no money in our sport. Right. So if you want to be, and I was a professional ultra marathon athlete for a number of years, mm-hmm. how the hell can you be a professional when there's no professional, right. You know, there was no framework. Um, you do that because you market yourself and you know how to market, you know how to speak, you know how to get sponsors, you know how to, you know, like, and you have to teach yourself all of that. Right. So there's a lot of, um, stuff that you learn along the way when you have to reinvent the wheel in this case, because there is no structure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so you manage to, to do things that uh, apparently can't be done, you know, and I, and I love that challenge and I love the, the, you know, when, when anybody ever tells me you can't do something that's, you know, you probably just made me commit harder and go, <laughs> go more. <laughs> I, I believe Which that. isn't always a good thing, but you know, it is, it is what it is. It's motivation of some sort. It's probably not the most positive motivation, um, <laughs> but you know, even negative motivations like that can be very powerful. Mm-hmm. Like in my early um, running career, in my ultra marathon running career, I had a, in my early twenties, I had a relationship with a young man who was 
uh, an extreme athlete, an amazing athlete who, you know, we toured the world, we cycled everywhere, we trekked, we climbed mountains, we did, you know, had an amazing lifestyle in one sense. On the other side, it was boot camp and he was um, abusive, you know, and I so Mm. was subject to a lot of abuse for, uh, you know, a good five years and this destroyed my confidence and my my um my identity and who I was and I couldn't escape it and you know it was really really a tough time in my life and that actually came to a head when he we, we were doing an expedition across the Libyan desert and this was an illegal expedition across I, the Libyan desert. I was going to mention that earlier when you when you said you crossed <laughs> the Libyan desert I was like really yeah, yeah, a 250k segment of it, not the entire thing. Still incredible. But it was an illegal, yeah, and it was really tough because we had to carry our entire everything for for the whole, entire trip. So that meant all our water as well. So we had 35 <laughs> kilo backpacks, and I only weighed like 58 kilos or so. Oh my God. Um, and in in this, you know, extreme dehydration and, and problems that we had, this was the first time. That, so I'd been with this guy for five years and we'd, we'd only ever been alone. We'd only traveled the two of us, you know, always on our own. And that was very insular and very, um, you know, unhealthy. And this was the first time we were actually with two other people. And he wanted me to help with a photography for a book. Mm-hmm that we were going to do about this beautiful desert that we were crossing. And Elvis, who was the leader of the expedition, um, he said, well, you can take as many photos as you like, but you've got to keep up because we've got to cover 45 kilometers a day and that's non-negotiable because otherwise we won't get out, right? Right. And and so the partner wanted me to help with the photography and I just physically was unable to keep up with the 35-kilo backpack and run around and, you know, set up tripods and, cameras and and do that as well was just physically unable to right and um elvis sort of you know so the partner was being abusive to me about this being useless and hopeless and you never you know why can't you do it and elvis was like hang on a minute mate you can't talk to her like that you can't treat her like that and it was the first time because i'd been alone with him for five years that became that had become my normal that had become my daily experience. And so for me, that wasn't abnormal. And I didn't recognize that as being not okay, right. <laughs> if that makes sense, yeah. when I was young. Um, sure. And and so this, this other guy standing up for me was like, oh, really? That's not okay, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, no, that's not okay, and you can't treat her. And this sort of festered away for a couple of days, and these two two guys ended up having a massive fight on day four, and uh, a verbal fight, not a physical one. Mm-hmm. But we were in dire straits. Like, we couldn't, you know, we were very dehydrated and very irritable and very, you know, if you can imagine the torture of not having enough water when you're, when you're crossing a desert, it's very frightening. Mm-hmm. And anyway, um, the partner says on day four, that's it, the relationship's over, I'm leaving you. And he disappeared over the sand dunes and left me. Um, it, this was a real low point of my life. Like, I was like you know, broken, like my relationship, I was living in Austria at the time and living in his country. My life is about to fall apart. Um, But I'm living, but I'm going through this desert and I have to, I started crying and thinking, Oh my God, he could die because he's by himself. And if he twists his ankle or anything, Mm -hmm. he's dead. And and he's left me with the other two guys. So, you know, I've got those guys 
And then I started to fall apart and my relationship's over and blah, blah, blah. And then I thought, hang on a minute, I can't, I can't fall apart right now. Mm-hmm. I have to pull my shit together because I've got to get through this. And I owe it to the other guys to not make any more dramas than I've already caused. And so I, I promised them I'll be fine and let's get on with it. And I pulled myself together and I focused on getting through. And we went through hell over the next three days. We went to hell and back and we nearly didn't make it out, but we did. And, but we had, you know, breakdowns and, you know, like body breakdowns and hallucinations and passing out and the whole, you know, central nervous system shutting down and kidney damage. And, you know, like it was pretty much on the edge, but we got through, we came out the other side and the partner came out the other side as well. He actually beat us out. Um, but, but it was like a turning point in my life where I went, nah, this is, you know, no one's going to treat me like that again. Mm-hmm. And I've got to start to rebuild. And it took me three years to get out of that relationship, actually, because it became, you know, very abusive and difficult to get away. Um, but I did eventually, and that was the beginning of my healing and my recovery. And that's why running became so important to me because, He'd always told me I was useless at running and hopeless and I could never do anything. And a couple of years after the the Libyan desert and, you know, uh, three years later when I was out of the relationship and I was reading in a magazine one day about this race across the Moroccan Sahara and it was touted at that time as the toughest race on earth. And it was 240K, so it was similar distance and we had nine litres of water and you had doctors and you had support and I'm like, hang on a minute, I reckon I could do that. (laughs) And I was sort of craving more adventure, but I wanted to do it in a slightly more controlled manner than, you know, doing an illegal crossing of any deserts. Um, (laughs) And so, and I had no partner now to do anything with. So I signed up for this race and it was life-changing. So I went down there, I did this race through Morocco. It was the most incredible experience of my life. People were amazing. If you can imagine like a big army camp that shifts every day of 700 runners and all the support crew and, you know, Land Rovers and helicopters and airplanes, and you're all moving across the Sahara and it's just amazing, amazing adventure. And I'm surrounded by people who are just wonderful and supportive and telling me how great I'm doing. And, you know, and we're all on this big mission together and it's difficult, but it's not as difficult as crossing the Libyan desert. And I haven't got anybody tearing me down in, in between, you know, right. <laughs> emotionally. So I'm like, this is a piece of cake. I've got this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I've got this. This is physically hard, but the rest of it I can cope with. Sure. And so I did really well and I ended up, you know, doing coming in the top 10 of the women in that race and, and then realizing, hang on a minute, I'm not that useless and I'm not as hopeless as I was being told. And yes, I'm not the fastest runner and I've never been a fast runner. Um, I'm still not a fast runner. I'm very slow, but I can go for days, you know, or, yeah. you know, I could back then I've stopped now doing the long stuff. But so it became more about that my strength lies in endurance. My strength lies in the mental toughness of pushing through physical pain and and this started to rebuild me so then i got addicted of course and i just did one race after the other and you know the rest is sort of history 25 years later you know right and 140 <laughs> ultra marathons later plus yeah exactly had a had a few addiction issues with running i think <laughs> <laughs> well i'm really happy to hear that you had that that being an athlete offered you not just a really good mindset, but that you had this transition out of this really dark, abusive period in your life to something much yeah. more self-confident and just sounds like self-satisfied and just like more in love with who you are. Oh, 
totally now, Victor, but that was a long journey. You know, we're talking another oh, another 15 years after that before <laughs> I'd say that I really felt, you know, like I, uh, you know, like now I'm, you know, 53 in a couple of weeks and I'm like, I still feel like a total work in progress and I've still got so many areas of my life and my psyche and my mental strength and my, all these things that I'm working on. Cause I don't think we are ever going to get there, mm-hmm. you know, any of us probably, but I feel like I know who I am now. I'm proud of who I am. I'm proud of what I've done. I, I, um, and now I live to help and empower other people mm-hmm. as well and, you know, strengthen them and their, in their times of struggle or their health issues or their, their mindset issues or whatever the case may be. Mm-hmm. And what I find as a coach, what's really interesting when you, like if I've got a, a young athlete or a middle-aged athlete and they're wanting to do something for them, that's big, right? Mm-hmm. It might be 5k. It might be a right. 10k. It might be a marathon. When I say to them, cause they come and they go, I can't do this. I'm never going to be able to do that. And I say, yes, you can. And here's how, Here's how, here's the structure, here's the program, here's the things that we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And I know you can do it, and I believe in you. When when, when someone that they respect, mm-hmm. you know, because of what you've done, believes in you, then you believe in yourself. And I've seen this over again, over and over, where, where people just uh, uh, do extraordinary things because somebody believed in them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's such a massive lesson for us to take away when you believe in people instead of doubting them and telling them they can't do it and who the hell do you think you are and mm-hmm. you're not good enough and you're you're this or you're that, um, you know, let's get in behind each other and, and empower each other to be better and to be stronger and be and, and to take on big challenges. And then if they fall, pick them up, you know, mm-hmm. and support them because that's a part of the process too, that whole, you know, failing um, you, you know, I've failed on many races, for example. Doesn't mean I'm a failure. It just means I was still learning, you know, mm-hmm. and I've got lots to learn. Um, and you know, I think that's really empowering when you when you get in behind other people and you you tell them you can do this, and oh, I've got the way forward for you. I've got the structure. I've got the plan. Mm-hmm. You just have to follow the plan, and I believe in you. And then watch them fly. I mean, with mum, that was definitely the case when she started to come to and realise what was happening to her, which was about a year and a bit into it. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember taking her down one day and t- she couldn't, she was in a wheelchair. She could take a couple of steps in the walker, but she couldn't do anything else. She had no control over her life at this point. She couldn't even go to the toilet by herself or shower or anything like that. And I said to her, I'm going to put you in the car and you're going to drive. And she looked at me like I was had two heads <laughs> and, you know, um, thought that that was an impossibility. And I said, no, you've, you've got this. You can do this. You've done this for years. You've got it in your brain somewhere. And we're going to do this. Now you're sitting, you won't have balance problems because you're sitting. So that was a big part of her problem. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I remember, you know, waddling her around to the other side of the car and sticking her in the driver's seat this one evening in this closed off car park uh, nearby a house. And, um, and my heart was in my mouth and I didn't know whether she was going to be able to or not, but I said, right now, turn the key on. It's automatic. So, you know, we put the, the thing in here and we'll put it into drive and then we'll go very, very slowly around. And I just looked at her and she was just grinning from ear to ear because somebody believed in her. And at mm-hmm. that point in her rehab, that meant to her, that was like saying, and you're going to come back to full health. 
you are going to make it and I believe in you and you can do it. And everyone else in my family, even even my brothers and my father were like, are you nuts? She will never drive a car. She can't even drive a, her electric wheelchair. She crashes into the wall. How the hell is she going to drive a car? And I said, you watch. We will do it, and it will take us some time. It will get there, won't we, Mum? And having that belief in her made her feel like she could. And, and we did, you know, we went round and round and round this blooming car park for weeks on end, and then we went slowly <laughs> out onto a little country road, and then we worked our way up. And then after six months, I said, right, now we're going to go to the doctor, and we're going to get a medical get your medical done and we're going to get the permission to go and actually sit your license again. So that's what we did. And I remember going into the doctor's surgery and she hadn't seen the doctor for a, you know, a good long period of time. And he'd been there at the beginning. He'd seen her in that, you know, not much over vegetative state. And he comes out into the surgery expecting me to be pushing her in the wheelchair. And she gets up by this point, by this point, and she walks in. And he's just like running, jumping around in front of her going, Oh my God, there's a miracle. It's a miracle. You're walking. And she says, yes, and I'm here to get my driver's license. And he nearly, he nearly fell over. He started crying, actually. And, <laughs> and he was just like, this is impossible. This is impossible. And I'm saying, but, but it's not. And she's here, and we're here to get her, mm-hmm. uh, you know, driver's license. Sorry, the bloody phone's gone That's off okay. in the background. <laughs> um, it's it's um, charming that you have a landline. <laughs> it's actually a normal phone, but... Um, it's my auntie. She rings about this every day to check in on my mum. So oh, that's <laughs> lovely. Me, no doubt. <laughs> um, anyway, we, we, the doctor did all his tests, did all his reaction tests, did all his, all of that sort of stuff. And, um, uh, it came back that she was able, she had all the reactions of a, of a normal person. She was able to go and sit her driver's license. So it was an absolute, you know, mind blowing experience to go through. And then she went and gone and went, you know, got her medical, and then was allowed to go and sit her driver's license. And we actually failed the first time she got went with with the driving instructor mm-hmm. and did her test. And I was devastated. And my mum was just like, "Oh no, dear, we'll just come back in two weeks and we'll try again. We'll get it." And we did. <laughs> we, we came back two weeks later, and um, she did it. Uh, just, just that's a really powerful story because that's a powerful story about when you believe in people even when they're up against it. Yeah. And sometimes you can just, you know, you, 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 you release things inside people when you do that. And that's very powerful. I, I think one of the things I loved most about that was the notion that it was inconceivable. It was so impossible that as soon as you can achieve one impossible thing, suddenly you start questioning all of the other things you thought were impossible. That's so good, Victor. That is exactly the thing. Cause then you, your horizons are, are, you, you are shattered, right? right? You, you 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 had these limitations, these limiting beliefs, and this is you know in every area of life you have these limitations in your head of what who Victor is and what he's able to do and what he's not able to do, mm-hmm. and these are all constructs of our childhood, of our experiences, of our youth, of our you know it's all in our subconscious programming, and then when you go and put on an, an injury like my mum experienced, you know where the limitations come you know right in. So you're not even able to go to the loo by yourself. Mm-hmm. When someone starts to break open those things and then you start to see the vision and you see what is possible, that's just, you know, mind-blowing. And then you can achieve the extraordinary thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm very, very, very uh, big on empowering people to think like that outside of their limiting beliefs. Because mm-hmm. I think we all limit ourselves so much more, me included. You know, I need somebody else to come in sometimes 
because we all need this to be a third party. We, we need it to be a friend, a relation, a counsellor or somebody mm-hmm. to come in and go, now, actually, a minute, that's a limiting belief that you've got there that isn't true, mm-hmm. you know? I'll give you another quick example. When mum was a kid, she got up on stage to do a speech at school, as you do, you know, as a seven or eight-year-old, sure. and she froze, and she couldn't speak. She couldn't get a word out because she got stage fright. Now, forever after, she would never speak publicly again because that was her, like, I am unable to do it. I will not ever speak publicly. Mm-hmm. She then has the aneurysm, right, and she loses that memory. From there on in, she was no longer limited. And now she gets up in front of medical conferences, in front of 500 <laughs> doctors, and will tell her story. And she's not worried anymore because that limiting belief of that seven, eight-year-old that was ridiculed, that memory's gone and no longer holds the power over her adult self now. And she realizes now when we talk about it that that was just a limiting belief that she'd set on herself based on that childhood experience. Now, how many of us are doing that? How many of us failed at math class or science class or whatever? And but because you had some stupid teacher or some stupid thing that you know that you couldn't do when you were that age, Mm -hmm. and then have gone on to think, well, then I cannot do math or I cannot do whatever the case was. and, and you need to re-examine those pre-existing beliefs as an adult and go, hang on, is that relevant to the person I am today? Mm-hmm. Or is that just that little girl, that little boy that's hurt? Mm-hmm. You know, and can I overcome that? Right. And what, what does that little boy or girl or person need? And how can I offer myself that? And there's all the techniques and <laughs> strategies yeah. around that. Yeah. Yeah, and then and then find people to help you, th- you know, through that journey, teaching you or you know, guiding you or listening to podcasts or you right. know, finding whatever it is to guide you through to the next level. But you know, don't don't put limiting beliefs on on you. I think is is the message. Yeah, and also you don't have to go it alone. It it doesn't have to be reinventing the wheel. Like there are a lot of people who have done it. And so much of it isn't isn't how do I do this, but who do I know who can show me how to do this? Oh, I love it. It's so true. And that's why having, you know, good influences in your life is just so, so important. In other words, you know, like if you surround yourself with negativity, with people who have limited beliefs and who are negative, you know, like um, some work environments, you know, because I work in a lot of industries and you Mm -hmm. go into them and they're just toxic Mm -hmm. and negative and They've had the shit beaten out of them for decades, perhaps, by the organisation, and they now no longer think for themselves. Mm-hmm. They don't. They're not have. A, they don't have a growth mindset. They're they're coming to work to get the paycheck and no more. And when you're working in that negative environment, oh my gosh, it's really hard to rise above that and to be mm-hmm. someone who's positive and growth mindset orientated and pushing the boundaries of what's possible and creating change. And it can be exhausting. And if you go and then surround yourself and try and, um, you know, counteract that if you're in a, you know, work or life environment that's like that, and then at least try to surround yourself with some positive influences on the the rest of your time that you have, whether that's through friends that are more positive or, uh, you know, learning and educating yourself or, or, or mentors or podcasters that you love or whatever the case is, but finding people 
who are like you want to be, who have experience and that can show you how to get there and to have that growth mindset, I think is just really, really important. That mindset that says, I'm going to keep learning. I'm going to keep open. I'm going to not be cynical and I'm going to keep developing and changing and growing and and not going into that negative, toxic uh, world stuffed mode, Mm -hmm. you know, which is very easy to, if you're surrounded by those types of people, we're the sum total of the five people we hang out with the most. Sure. You know, that's the um, saying goes. Is that a subtle, I'm trying to remember all of the, cause Simon Sinek did the um, start with why. And then yes, there was, who is the author that did the, um, you're the sum total of the five people around you. The subtle edge. Oh, I think it's was called it, the subtle was edge. It Nepo- yeah. Was it Napoleon Hill or something? I don't know, but it was, it was, you know, it's an old one. It's an old yeah. one. But it really is true. It's still valid today, you know. So surround yourself with positive people, people that are doing what you want to be or, you know, that are going in that direction. Um, this is where masterminds and groups and things can be really, really powerful it was, because you're, it was, you're getting positive input. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. It was Jim Rohn. That's cool. Jim Rohn, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that makes yep. sense. I, I'm, I'm sure there's been a few people sure, that have said, sure. you know, this, the same sort of thing. <laughs> That's okay. Um, well, you know, we're, we're, we're running to time anyway, so why don't we end the session here? Okay, brilliant. Thanks so much, Victor. Yeah, thank you so much. So how did you like it, Intimates? Discuss your ideas with the community at facebook.com forward slash Intimate Victor, or tweet me at Intimate Victor, or follow my Instagram, you guessed it, at Intimate Victor. If you can spare the cost of coffee to help the show keep going, head to patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. We hugely appreciate your help to continue making intimate conversations for you and yours. If not, you can always help other intimacy nerds find the podcast by leaving us a review anywhere online, especially iTunes. Or you can just tell a friend. The opening music is on hold for you made of algorithmically generated notes and chords and played by an AI-rendered saxophonist. The closing music is Gymnopédie, number one, by Eric Satie. Both are provided royalty-free, courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Thanks so much for your time, and may your most important relationships be filled with the intimate, rich interactions you crave. Be well. <laughs>